wenig, sagt er zu den... continuing slasher month as we did on the last episode we got into kind of the origins of slasher films and now we're getting into the nitty gritty of slasher films when they were at their peak their most popular which is the early 80s the slasher boom as it's called and we have selected two films from the slasher boom that no one really gives a shit about whatsoever because who the fuck wants to talk about halloween again because i sure as fuck don't um, so we're going to talk about rando slasher films from the 80s when people were trying to make all kinds of money off of different holidays and different concepts and really only took 30 minutes to write down a treatment for a script and went, here, it's Halloween on a train. Give me money, please. We attempted to at least have a linear aspect to this because the first episode was Random Acts of Violence. So that was a new slasher that's something that's in your face and you can find right now. And then we went wanted to go into maybe something like the early history, the, uh, the evolution of the slasher and how it turned out in the United States. And we ended up doing like the death of slashers pretty much. We did the very, very first one with Blood and Black Lace, and then we did fucking Argento's opera, which is pretty much the last time I would say Death even, is Yalo, as opposed to slashers, I would say. I think even in the late 80s until recently, even the American slasher has dwindled to the point that opera is just a really good kind of wave bye-bye to the genre. There it goes. Watch it enter the 90s where everyone's aggressive for no reason and dialogue just sucks because everyone wants to be Kevin Smith. Now we wanted to kind of have this motion of, okay, here's the perfect era of American slashers. So we picked one most people hate and complain about, and then we picked one that's Canadian. So it's... <laughs> <laughs> just... No, I don't say people hate it. I, I, it's gotten a lot of, uh, especially over the last ten years, yeah, has really recently. made a comeback. It's pretty. It was pretty unknown actually throughout the eighties. There was a like a handful of people who like, no, I really, I, I really like this one, and I never got a chance to see it until um, like the era of DVD because I had never saw it at video stores. I'd never even heard of it other than seeing some reviews of it um, back in the eighties and early nineties. But when DVD came out. Um, I was I managed to actually get like I had to get a fucking bootleg because I'm pretty sure Code Red put the DVD out for it and it immediately went out of print within like, you know, like a month. So I finally saw it and went, holy shit, that was actually really good. And it's kind of a pity it's been overlooked for so long as being like a really quality slasher film that really hits all the marks without being overly ridiculous, overly beholden to slasher tropes and just being nice and solid. I don't really have an in-depth story of the first time I saw Madman because it's one of those movies that's just always been around. We're talking about Madman. <laughs> I, I failed to bring that up. Madman, 1981. It's also somewhat unfortunate that by the time this movie has had its resurgence and gotten popularity and a fandom and people appreciating it, pretty much everyone involved in its dead that would have been really happy to see the success of it blow up. I always just remembered it as... 
oh yeah, that's that movie with Fly Girl in it. And that's how I, I just knew she was in it. And I always thought it was one of those really strong female lead sort of things where she kicked ass and saved the day. And to an extent, yeah, I guess so. But nothing that I recalled in that movie happened. <laughs> Watching Mad Men, especially if you don't have a like an 80s bent to it, like you didn't watch it in the 80s and it's set apart from that era and really going back to it. And you just see how well it encompasses that era of slasher films, the slasher boom. One of the big, we won't get too much into trivia for this film, but if you want to get like learn some trivia, watch the uh, last drive in Joe Bob episode of about Madman. It'll tell you plenty about it. But to me, like I think what really made this movie different and really started it on its path is the fact that they were it's Staten Island people. They were trying to make the Cropsey legend into a slasher film. Turns out rapist Harvey Weinstein beat them to the punch. They'd already written a script, so they had to change the script and make something new out of it. And what they came up with out of it was, I think, actually fairly brilliant and very well put together overall. I would love to know what the original script had looked like compared to something like The Burning. If it was that similar, they had to rush into delivery and get some things changed. Which I don't even think that was the only delay with Madman. I believe there were two or three other less interesting problems that caused this movie to money. Really... I think most of it's money. And what that unfortunately did is I think ended up giving it an edge over a lot of the other summer camp movies because it's very clear, even though they've painted a lot of the leaves and tried to make the great outdoors look like it's summer, it's a the dead middle of winter and there's just something it's cold a, as fuck well i think there's just something a little scarier about that there's just a little mm-hmm. difference than it being the beauty of summer that there's something dead about the still quiet of that type of night and if you've ever been out in the woods in the middle of winter there is just something inherently creepy to it and it really plays to the benefit and also that this movie is entirely shot in darkness and it's a four-hour story pretty much i mean it what from the campfire to midnight is right so like eight o'clock to midnight. So this movie set place and this movie is set place in a very small window, entirely in dark. One closed location. I think Joe Bob talks about all this shit. So the fact that it's just silent and it's dark, it's scary. I mean, there's something just different than your average summer camp vibe here. I wouldn't say that this is the greatest summer camp movie of all time, but you've made a very bold statement. It's better than most of the Friday the Thirteenth series. I think next to the Burning and Sleepaway Camp, though. You don't really have a finer example of the horrors of going out into the woods. Like summer camp, like slasher films, people overstate how many there were. There are like a nice handful of them, but there weren't like just this litany of them. There wasn't like hundreds of like or even 50 summer camp slasher, slasher films. It just become, became kind of this trope. But in reality, there's only like a nice handful. And this is, I think, at the top echelon of that and i have made the statement before that it's better than 90 percent of the friday 13th movies i think it's better than friday 13th part 5 part 7 part 8 part 9 part 10 uh part 3 maybe not one four i don't i, I kind of like it better than one i find friday the 13th the first one actually pretty fucking boring it was influential but uh, like on you know on in the future rewatches it's kind of boring I guess you didn't buy the box set, huh? Uh. <laughs> I can't afford the box set because Jesus Christ is that thing expensive. 
I see. I have no like disagreements with you, but I, I think even on the slasher tier in general, stripping this away from just being a camp movie, I think it's a finer product than a lot of other in-your-face things that are talked about. I mean, yeah, Halloween Two is really, really exciting, but Madman again has something just completely different to offer, and it, it's just a ripoff of fucking Halloween. But when you follow the formula and you follow it well, I mean, just comparing it between what Madman Mars is and Michael Myers, you've got the cool costume effect. You see them, you know what's going on. I mean, you see. Michael Myers. Yeah, you kind of wonder what's behind the mask, but it's jarring enough. All the same components that make those two things fairly frightening, if followed really correctly, become Madman. And it, it worked out. I mean, I think it was successful, even to the extent that it's got jump scares that work for the benefit of the movie, which is pretty fucking rare. I think really what sets Madman apart from a lot of the other <clears throat> slasher films of that era is it gets its tone incredibly correct. With the opening credit thing the little like animation at the beginning that's really cool the music it's very casio uh needle drop but um i think it works really well i actually don't think it was needle drop i think they um i got it didn't i think the composer is actually somebody kind of famous now to be quite honest with you no i, I don't mean needle drop as, as in like a purchase song is much more of just an idea of how kind of basic it sounds like a very basic casio sounding soundtrack of you know just hitting a bunch of keys uh but i think it works really well uh, as you brought before the um the cold nature of it i think really kind it's of Stephen sets Horlick. it apart did the soundtrack so somebody it was a, it is somebody that became pretty successful later on the cold nature of the film sets it apart really um the blue they do the blue moonlight thing which i normally hate in, in a lot of um horror films but in this one i think it works really well because it's not always blue they don't just like put a blue gel on a light and say see it's nighttime they use it sparingly and there's also some you know some bright 10k lights at times and you know blows out the uh the complexions a little bit but i think it looks really interesting and for the most part most of the characters are very realistically based they're like they didn't go for like dumb archetypes they just kind of went with people i don't care about any of these fuckers but at least they, they seem like normal people like let's look at sleepaway camp i think a lot of the characters are somewhat realistic but it's very very exaggerated and it's very very new york and even though this is a staten island movie everyone Everyone is pretty genuine. I mean, you've got right at the beginning of a movie, a couple, uh, two counselors kind of get into a, a quarrel that is way too open for everyone and these children. Very to hear. personal to be done in front of campers. I thought we were going to fuck tonight. <laughs> it's oh the last God. time before we go back to the city. Tony Fish playing TP. Uh, my, my biggest hang up apparently with this movie we were talking before the show is that this guy's name is TP. It has nothing to do with anything, but it fucking annoys me. I mean, why would you diss somebody like that? TP. What a dumb name. There's a whole realm of J names. DJ, AJ, KJ. Uh, okay, well, there's not that many, but there's there's there, there's a lot of other A and J names that you could have totally gone with instead of TP. Maybe it's Tony Polinto. I'm Tony Pilato. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to figure this out. Tony Placina. It uh, it's still. I mean, I'm Joe Pilato's brother, Tony. The worst part, though, is even though he's kind of a douchey character, I think Tony really is one of the more significant ones. And his, as usual, God damn it, with Death by DVD, full on fucking spoilers. His death is the one that just makes you go, whoa, what have I gotten into? This just a few minutes ago was a, a pretty what just. I'd say go, for the very first time, if you're going into this movie, you might have some doubts because you've got that soundtrack and that whole uh, intro kind of animated, really cheap Saul Bass looking thing at the very beginning. Then it goes into the tackiest 
horror story being told, which is really your your whole backing story. You're told right at the beginning, a character named Max tells you what's going on, who Madman Mars is, and if you say his name too loudly, he might think you're talking to him and come get you. And of course, children are smart asses and yell everything out. Then the lover spat. By this point in time, you're probably like, okay, this is, uh, this is reminding me a little bit of the young and the restless. This kind of sucks. And if you hold in for just a little while longer, you, you get a really, really great introduction to Madman Mars, a murder, and then finally when you get to TP, which I'd say is in the 20-minute range, the whole ride changes. You, you know at this point that you have entered the danger zone and that you are in the right place. If the, you know, You're a mutant-type person. Well, I mean, I think with the death of TP, I mean, it is just, it's a hanging. But what works so much, like, well with it is he gets hung, and he struggles, and he's choking, and he's gagging, he's being hung by a tree. And he almost But he manages it. to, like, claw himself up to the tree branch and save himself to where he's sitting there. He can gasp a little bit of fresh air until Mars just reaches up, grabs him by the belt, and just pops him down and snaps his neck. And that's, you know, that's some actual violence. It has, um, it has weight to it. It has some actual, it's not just something that is uh, kind of unimaginable. It's actually has some feeling behind it. Also, I think re what really works, um, it doesn't work in all films. The legend of Madman Mars, that's just told around the campfire at the very beginning of the film. It sets you straight up and it gives you a nice ghost story with very clear boundaries of what's getting ready to happen, who this character is, he, this is why he does what he does. This is, I mean, it's... Which pretty much is a, a bunch of Greek salad. I mean, really, to borrow one oh, from yeah, Joe Pilato. Oh, but it works. But see, that's the thing, too, is you're, you're given this great example of a story of why he's doing all this, but it's for no reason. He's just doing it. Madman Mars kills people because killing's fun to he him. He got drunk and killed his family. <laughs> and, yeah, now he lives in a van down by the river. Not really, but it's just, it's all senseless, but it works for the benefit again, just like the movie being in the dark. It's just one of those few little things. You didn't need the whole, let's pick on Friday the 13th. Jason drowned. It Could it be him? Here's the red herring. No, it's Madman Mars. He's killing people. He heard his name and he's killing people. They, they, that's what happens and it, it really worked. And they went for something like very iconic with Madman Mars because he is like a woodsman in overalls, but he's got kind of the hatchet face. He's got monster feet, which I don't completely understand why he gets so monstrous after he comes back from the dead where he's this like burly mountain man. He was just a big dude who got hit in the face with an axe. It's not like he like has some kind of supernatural powers um, other than, I guess, returning from the dead. Well, Joe Bob brought that up also, and he mentioned that it's sort of like, a, I'm paraphrasing here, but like he's become a spirit entity of the woods and is like half animal, half man. I guess if you really want to read into what Madman Mars is, and you, you can feel free to do it. We said at the beginning of the show there probably wouldn't be any fun facts, but I do have a fact about Tony Fish for this uh, specific scene we're talking about. Apparently he was a bit of a freak and, and choked himself out repeatedly because he didn't really want to do makeup for this. He wanted it to be a legitimate effect. He wanted to actually look like he was dying. So when, God, it's like five or ten minutes later, his body is found and he's released from the tree and he hits the ground. You get this very, very brief shot of his face. And I guess there's not a lot of makeup there that most of the cast thought he was going to accidentally kill himself, choking himself out with his belt to get ready for the scene. So if you look very closely, that is just a very psychotic man and no makeup. David Carradine, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, in his one brief appearance in Madman. Ooh, that's as bad as my Jan Michael Vincent joke last week. The violence... It does get graphic at times, but it's not overly Savini-esque. And when I say that, I, I'm not trying to diss the man, but like if you go through the Friday 13th series specifically, all the deaths are very much set up. 
like the shots are even set up to display this effect of what's getting ready to happen. And honestly, you can kind of see what's getting ready to happen, especially in the new Blu-ray transfers of like the original Friday 13th, like the, like the, the prosthetic pieces are like a different color than their actual skin color. They're gray for Christ's sakes. But the way they're done in this film, they aren't just like gags. It's not like a shot where we're getting ready to do this. There's like, there's some urgency in the kills. They are shot in a way of show a lot of kinetic energy happening. It's not just like get ready to see this um, this magic trick as much as it is like they're trying to communicate actual brutal violence, which I think works really well, particularly. And it does have some decapitations. It does have oh, it's mostly a lot of after the uh, act special effects makeup. What's your favorite? Because mine is when fucking Betsy shoots her friend in the face by accident. That <laughs> That's such an awful scene, and it's not something to laugh at. But this poor character just gets gets her ass handed to her. She's just being mauled to death. She gets an axe in the chest and manages to survive, and Galen Ross shoots her in the face with a double-barreled shotgun, and it's like, oh, wow, Jesus, you're my final Whoops. girl. And that's great, too. I mean, this is an era when people look back on the movie, and, and we, we discussed this a few episodes ago, that this whole bullshit rules that came out with Scream and this, this 90s slasher era, there's rules. You can't smoke pot, you can't fuck. None of that mattered in, in the 80s. None of that really came to fruition until Scream fanboys grew up and now argue on the internet that 30-year-old, 40-year-old movies had to have some fucking formula that was not in anybody's mind or even hindsight at the time period. This throws the whole thing completely upside down because you can go from something like Halloween where you have that, not, I wouldn't even say virginal, I mean, because she was totally down to fuck and sh uh, she smokes pot at one point in the movie. You've got still the primordial final girl with Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, I guess. And here with Betsy, she's absent for most of the movie, shoots one of her own friends by accident in the faces, and ultimately, I mean, the movie is certainly set up for a sequel, but to me, I'd say she pretty much fails. I mean, because getting well, impaled... She does fail. Yeah, you get impaled, you fail. That's how it works. She's, like, by default the final girl, too, because, like, as you said, it kind of just goes from person to person to person, and then she's basically the only one left to kind of fight off Madman Mars, and... And it's only far... because she didn't go outside for half of the movie. Like, everyone else starts looking for the other characters, and she's just the one that's like, well, I'm gonna wait here in case somebody comes back. That's the only reason she makes it to the end, which I guess the lesson at hand is if you're camping and everyone starts disappearing, stay the fuck to yourself. Or just leave. I mean, sounds awful, but it might be how you survive. It does have one of my favorite gags done by a, a slasher villain, as in um, putting a human head in a car engine so the car won't start. That's that's a pretty good gag. He really, I mean, that he really made them laugh with that one. The gag to get there, I think, is pretty good too. The old cut somebody's head off with the hood of the car. I I don't think that's actually possible. I don't think that metal is sharp enough nor resilient enough to stand going through someone's fucking spinal column, but whatever. It works again for the benefit. Like, that probably is the gaggiest of the kills where you kind of giggle a little bit. And I'm sure even back in the day, any, I mean, watch this movie smoking a little pot. You're going to laugh at that scene. But I don't ever really recover from how vicious TP's death was. I mean, showing that in its full nature, because it's not just like he's hung. When Madman Mars finds him, he throws a noose around him from behind his neck and drags him a good 20 feet, and the scene is vicious. Tony Fish gives it his all. I mean, he's grasping, gasping for breath. He's clawing at his neck. It really looks like a snuff film. I mean, it's it's a little disturbing and very, very uncomfortable, and then he gets this moment of relief where he gets to breathe and thinks maybe for a second somebody's pulling a prank on him, 
and Madman hoists him up into the tree, and that's when shit, for me, goes into overdrive. That's when it becomes very, very real. And Tony is so established at this point, you really think he's going to last in the movie. You know they've given so much exposition on Galen Ross that she's going to be the final girl. They wouldn't bother showing her that much at this point if they weren't going to give you your money's worth with the character. And they set Tony up with her so clearly, you really assume that it's going to be them fighting to get back to civilization, the big city where they're going to fall in love and everything's going to be great, and then boom, Tony's hanging right off the bat. My favorite Tony Fish scene is where he's talking to Max about the axe that's stuck in the uh, the uh, stump or you want to put it. Well, it's just like he goes into this whole thing of, that's what you do! You win! It's like, Jesus Christ! What? This guy's got some anger management issues. That's the owner of the camp, and you're just like getting in his face about something that really doesn't matter whatsoever but i don't know it's just kind of um elaborating on that character and making him a little bit more three-dimensional uh probably a lot less likable but who cares well, it's kind of funny too it's it's at a camp i mean it's almost inconsequential and has no point it doesn't even matter that they set it up as a camp the first scene establishes all these campers and that it's a gifted school that's why it's in the middle of winter that they're gifted you i don't know i always thought that you could have some idea with that like oh they set it up because they're gifted so it's going to be like real genius where they're going to do something really great or toy soldiers and they're going to fight their way through things or that one with patrick stewart that kid on the skateboard from the 90s i don't remember the name of that masterminds yeah masterminds something like that where they fight it off and it's really clever no the kids show up at the beginning a little bit at the end you've got one kid that's lost the entire time that manages to survive who He's i will say real. yeah that is um, the, the best i love the ending madman mars he's real bong bong oh the cavile telling of lost in the woods with the madman and the stars don't laugh at the tale Call him the legend lives beware the madman Mars the legend. What you just referenced though, I think is a very interesting section that I haven't seen in too many slasher films, and I think it makes this one a little bit more interesting is when Galen Ross is trying to get the kids to safety, she like loads them into this bus and like Madman goes shit house in the bus and he's trying to like attack the bus. It's like, okay, you know, you know, a school bus full of children screaming and under this assault, and it's very interesting and like just very kind of action-packed. You don't really see that much of a threat in a slasher film. It's usually hunting from the shadows or sneaking up and you know, jump scares. And in this, it's like a full-on assault for once in a horror film, which is a kind of an interesting technique they went with, which they quickly abandon after that, and then it becomes a, just kind of a normal Final Girl scenario of her trying to find Madman Mars's house, and I don't know what the fuck she's doing there, other than I guess... <laughs> I, I wouldn't say you needed to kill some kids, but let's look at Sleepaway Camp. Just You don't even see when... Uh, it's, it's toward the end of the movie when the guy goes back with the two whiny-ass kids that didn't want to stay out in the woods, and then he comes and discovers all the other youngsters have had their heads crushed in. You don't see Angela do it, but that implied violence that all these kids got crushed to death sleeping innocently in their sleeping bags is horrifying. That is just enough that... One or two kids killed off screen might have pushed it just a little bit more for you to really feel that disgust with what is happening. But it, I don't know. I still like what I got. I mean, it's one of those things that you break it down and you talk about it in depth. But really, I have no actual complaints when it comes to Madman. Uh, I wish there was a little bit more Korg. A little bit more soundtrack. That would have been cool. I think, like, but you lose some of the innocence if you go that way because... 
despite all the violence, despite um, all of the, the sexual nature of the film at times, it's a very innocent slasher film. It doesn't push itself too far. It's a ghost story legend about a killer in the woods, and that is what you get, a killer in the woods. And it's people are going to think less of me, but I think it's very appropriate for children. This is an appropriate slasher film for children to watch. Is there any nudity? I mean, there is, I, I would say some of Not the really. violence is, is over the top. I, I mean, what age do you define children at? Cause I'd say like a 10 year old. Sure. Fuck it. They can watch this. Why not? Well, yeah. Cause it doesn't get particularly graphic. It's kind of a monster. It's mostly just kind of a monster movie. I mean, sure. You have some explicit violence in places and things like that, but it doesn't like push itself too far far you have some children menaced you have uh, a lot of death but at the end of the day it's very good natured it doesn't um like silent night deadly night that is not like a like a good natured slasher film for children it's very mean spirited and this is not a mean spirited film uh in, in any way shape or form it's very much just a setup premise and execution and it does all those things very beautifully i've been sitting trying to think of reasons why you could be wrong but in all honesty i mean yeah it just depends i guess on what you deem your your kids intake of violence to be at i mean if you have some kid that's on that weird bedwetting spectrum that's still setting fires and killing animals maybe you shouldn't show them this you know maybe this is something that little timmy the cat killer shouldn't watch but i think an average child should be able to watch something like this i mean i guess to follow up with your statement even something like terminator the very first terminator that's kind of a kid friendly movie these days right i mean you could show like a 7 year old terminator and they could maybe digest evil robot comes from future it's not real and and be able to get past it well i mean none of the themes in it are particularly dark and i think that has a lot to do with it 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 doesn't like get really in depth with a lot of sociological issues it doesn't get in depth with shit like racism or drug abuse or any like adult themed ideas i mean there's an underwater blowjob, but like a 10-year-old's going to know what the fuck's going on in that hot tub because I don't even know what the fuck is going on in that is hot tub. Is it a blowjob? Is it a butt job? Is it a ZJ? We we just don't know. That's a real ball like You know what I mean? So it's $10 for a BJ, $12 for an HJ, $15 for a ZJ. What's a ZJ? <laughs> if you have to ask, big man, you can't afford it. I got $4. But at the end of the day, that's I mean, that's how I feel about it is just the fact that it's very much just a spooky ghost story and somewhat appropriate for a young adult. Not nine years old, but when you start getting into, you know, like 10, 11, 12, all that sort of things, that, that's an appropriate time for Batman. It doesn't get too excessively violent or gory or just deal with too many horrible ideas other than just, you know, monster killing. It's like an episode of fucking Scooby-Doo where, you know, all the guys of Scooby-Doo get killed. The mystery machine gets fucked up. So, yeah, Madman, show it to your kids. Uh, It's funny that we have, you know, all jokes aside, I think we spoke pretty highly of this movie in general, and almost everyone that participated in it doesn't like to talk about it, uh, used a fake name, like Galen Ross is Alexis Dubin or something like that. Tony Fish's birth name was not Tony Fish, not in the least bit. It's bizarre. I mean, I understand having a later on career, and Joe Bob explains on his show uh, Galen Ross's prolific career as a documentary director and all sorts of stuff like that. But outside of maybe eating a butthole, sucking a dick in a hot tub, there's not that much to be ashamed of. It's it's a pretty coherent movie, and you'd mentioned this at the very beginning of the show. One of the top tier lesser known slashers, and in the very mini subgenre, one of the top tier 
camp slasher movies on top of that. And I think, in, in jokes aside completely, it, it, it's worth everyone seeing. I mean, I, I don't know what type of backlash we'll get from saying, show your children whatever, but at the same time, fuck it, show, <laughs> you know, do whatever. Well, I mean, go to something like The Burning, um, which is analogous to this movie. You have discussion of lubed rubbers. You have a I lot of um, sex room. in the film. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> you have that. a lot of prostitution, or you have a lot of prostitution. You have some scenes of prostitution. You have just Wait, a lot of adult. What part of the burning ideas. has prostitution in it? At the beginning, when he kills the prostitute. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's just there's a lot of intense adult themes that you'd have to be explaining afterwards. And in this, it's just it's literally just like a ghost story. It's not an amazing movie. It's just a very very solid movie. And that is hard to come by, especially in the slasher genre. There are not many solid slasher films. Have you ever seen Twisted Fucking Nightmare? It is not solid whatsoever. It is a goddamn disaster mess. Well, the next segment on tonight's episode of Death by DVD is why blood-sucking freaks should be taught in preschool. Yeah, I wouldn't show. That's a, I would say that's a fucking 16-plus movie on blood-sucking freaks. I wouldn't be showing my kids that. What was that Jonathan Swift essay about how the Irish wouldn't starve if they ate Irish babies? Because that's kind of what I feel we're doing right now. What the fuck? <laughs> That's a bizarre reference, man. <laughs> it was a parody article about how the Irish wouldn't starve during the famine if they just stop reproducing I and eating. I know what it is. Oh, Why okay. are you it up, man? <laughs> I just feel that that's the hill we're on right now. Like, okay. <laughs> you, you gotta show Madman to your kids. Listen to me. You gotta fucking show it to them. <laughs> well, you don't have to say it through your teeth like a fucking psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't screaming at the audience. You better watch the little bastards you to see Madman. Watch it with your children. Oh God. Uh, yeah, I I I don't know anymore that I have on Madman. <laughs> All right. So next on the agenda is a movie that came out in I think 1984. Pulling that out of my ass. 80. Am I right, Hank? Four years. Is it off. 80? Yeah, 1980. Jesus Christ, I was way off. This also, too, I would say is one of the precursors right on the boom of slashers. And this movie oh, yeah. obviously uh, takes all of its story and all of its ideas from Jamie Lee Curtis and her character in Halloween because it's Terror Train starring Jamie Lee Curtis. Did Spotswood do any more horror or was this just his one foray? I think Spotswood went on to do maybe another horror film, too. I'm not real sure. This is a definitely articulate shot movie. This is something that's really interesting because it takes place on a train and you could have done oh my god he did fucking 48 hours and the sixth day what an odd career <laughs> <laughs> what, what the hell i mean that's just i wasn't expecting 48 that. hours yeah what 40... are you doing no that was fucking walter hill wasn't it writer he wrote oh my god oh wrote okay and he directed the sixth day though shoot to kill wow what an odd odd career this man's strange moves but terror train looks like well here on death by dvd where we read things from imdb to you was his very first movie and then he did some episodes of ripley's believe it or not Ooh, turner and hooch <laughs> what a guy this one is a generic slasher film and that's one of the reasons i picked it is because it is so generic what really the only thing that makes it stand out is jamie lee curtis and um, David Copperfield being in it and like the whole magic idea, which serves literally no purpose in the film. It's just kind of doesn't even do fucking like good thought. magic. Like that's my big gripe. You got David Copperfield world legendary 
everyone knows his name, the greatest magician ever, David Comperfield. And he does like, hey, check it out. I can make a cigarette go through a quarter. Look at it. Look at it go. Look, I'm going to light it. Hey. He puts a switchblade in a playing card, dude. This ain't kid stuff. Yeah, it's definitely not kid stuff, but I don't know. I've always been enamored with David Comperfield. I even got to see him when I was a kid. And to make it even better, we were sitting by the trap door. So when he made himself disappear, he fucking came up next to me. Probably because I'm so cool and the world's greatest. And he just knew that I was bound to talk about this movie 25 years later on a late night podcast. Give him shit about it. (laughs) Would you put a fucking cigarette in a corner, ass? Could have done better magic, David Copperfield, you fucking reappeared right next to me when I was seven. I mean, what the fuck, bro? I I don't know. I've just been a little disappointed and sour over this movie. Something that I do think is funny, too, again, full-on spoilers, he's not the goddamn killer. I, I Every time I watch this movie, right, right until it's explained to you, it's like, man, I can't believe David Copperfield's killing all these people. What a dick. But what a great excuse. He's a magician. He, It's great. You know, it's, it's a sleight of the eye. You don't see it coming. Yes, but the real killer is a magician as well. He was the president of the magician's club in college or whatever the fuck they find out at when, one point. When do they say that, though? Is it, uh, it's when they're going through the sure yearbook, she's right? going through like a fucking annual on the train and goes, oh, Kenny, you knew magic. And the guy's name is Ken. I bet that's Kenny. In the same scene, there's a picture of all the guys when they were... Because they have to explain some issues that had happened. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. But in this scene, they, their Kenny is pictured with all the lead characters. And one of the female characters asks, who is that? And they go to explain who it is. And every time that it's brought up, somebody off screen will wave no or something. And then the whole thing has to stop. But, um, God, we are, we're way ahead of even what Terror Train is about. I, I like the movie, though. I have no... Well, that's why I wanted to bring it up, is it's generic as shit. It's a very generic slasher film. But if you do it correctly, you don't even have to have that big of a gimmick to do it. If you just shoot it right and are earnest about it, you can make an incredibly quality film. I always equate this with late night television, specifically CBS. Cause I'm pretty sure that's the first time I saw it. it was like it, you know, like midnight on a Saturday and it was just randomly playing. Like, what is this? And it's in the middle of train. summer, like nowhere around new year's. It never plays at an appropriate time. Like it's new year's Eve. Cause that's, this is a new year's horror movie that again is cashing in on the whole uh, idea of Halloween. Well, seasons are scary, right? Let's just make it scary. New year's. All right. But everyone's wearing a costume because you know, the great big tradition of, New Year's costume parties, I guess. Slash graduation parties, and why are you graduating and at New Year? Whatever. What type of medical um, school is this? Oh yeah, there's another fucking pipe that goes down into the whole cogs here. They're all medical students, so you get this. You're, I, I feel it's supposed to be well, they're medical students, so anyone could be doing it. But aren't they just pre med? Because this is a medical school, is it? I don't know. I, they because Jimmy Curtis isn't in med school. One guy's named Doc, and there's just a whole illusion to They maybe... were pre-med, definitely, but I don't know if they're actually in medical school or not, but they talk all the time about medical school. Well, that's how the whole prank against Kinney happened, because one of them got the job, Doc, as the janitor, and had the access to be able to get the body parts to really fuck with this guy. Long story short, they're all douchebag chads that parents are paying for whatever degree they've decided to get into, and that they have really no... Uh, you get to with all of these characters especially the male leads no one really cares what I wouldn't say they don't care what's going to happen to them but they don't feel that there's any repercussions to their actions everything that no, these they're people... all rich boys they're all dipshits um... well it's like Jamie Lee Curtis's boyfriend has no problem 
being upset about her yelling at him, but two seconds later is going to go fuck somebody else. And of course, he's pushing the chick away a little bit, but he had no right even going back there with her if he cared so much about her. And it's just because they don't care. And I think a lot of these are plot devices that you were supposed to use, but it just, nothing really falls into place with Terror Train. And that's not a problem, but it's like, eh, I don't care when they die now. They go through a certain whodunit type scenario because at the beginning we have the the previous evil scene of them fucking with this guy Kenny who's this nebbish you know small man who um, they make him go crazy by him having to make out with a cadaver that he doesn't realize is a cadaver and then Jamie Lee Curtis is just sure Kenny's back to enact his revenge for this prank that they played like four years earlier. Well, they don't even focus on that it's Kenny. Like midway through the movie, you have two or three murders. Like the very first murder is one of their friends. You never even see his face. And he is, everyone's getting on the train and they think he's pulling a prank that he's put like a prop sword through him. He's dying. He falls down, which you get kind of a cool scene when the train takes off, it squishes his head and you get this great, like, crushed melon sound effect. The scene, the next kill after that is another character in a Halloween costume where it's it just slammed against a mirror and they die. You don't really know, you, you have the juxtaposition that it's supposed to be the magician, that it's going, Ken the magician is up to something, no one knows who he is, Doc has a lot of animosity toward him. And you're like 20, 30 minutes into the movie when Jamie Lee Curtis goes to the conductor, or not even the conductor, somebody on the train and says, we think one of our friends didn't get on. And somebody goes, oh no, I saw him. He's wearing the Groucho Marx thing. And that's suddenly where the kin is brought up. It's just, it's thrown in right around there with that yearbook sequence at the same time where it's like, well, you begin the movie with this guy. So I assume at some point you're going to bring him in, but no one specifically seems to villainize him. Like no one straight up says, well, I think Kenny's back. He's brought up regularly. Jamie Curtis eventually does, though, doesn't she? I think it's really like like way toward um, like I think it's after spoilers when Ken, the actual magician, is found. I think when his corpse is discovered, that's where she's like, "It's got to be Kenny." I think it's no, way- no, 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 no. Okay, well, because as I remember it, though, it's because they think David Copperfield is Kenny. Yeah, that's what you're led to and believe. Like, okay, I'm sorry. I've always been mystified by the fact that. How the fuck did you think that this like because it's only been super four years. skinny dude from four years ago is now like somewhat buff David Copperfield? Has he been able to like change his appearance that much? Yeah, I, I I flubbed here. That's a problem itself with Terror Train is so much of it gets muddled that there's this massive party going on the whole time and it is in a train. So all of your scenes and sequences are people going from one car to the next car to the disco car to the magic car. It's really hard to keep track of what you're being exposed to plot-wise because one car somebody's dying on, the next car it's Jamie Lee Curtis finding her boyfriend cheating on her, then her best friend dies, and it just goes to this weird back and forth, almost like one of those novels where you have to get to the page that says... Flip to page 32 or page 18 to decide what to do next. And you got to really choose your focus. own adventure. Yeah, you got to choose which part of this plot you're going to focus on. Well, I think one of the issues is the geography is never particularly um, established of what car leads to the next car. And then it just people are able to travel from car to car. And it's almost like they like can kind of um, teleport from car to car. Cause you're going to have to go through like the sleeping quarters. You're going to have to go through the disco car. And it just seems like everybody just goes for like, it's just kind of easy to get to the disco car 
out of nowhere. Like you didn't have to travel through this car to get, I don't know, but the geography is not very well like established and that can be a little bit confusing, but also if you establish it too much, you'd be thinking about the validity of how someone's going to be able to travel from place to place and not be noticed. I don't care if you're wearing a fucking Halloween costume or not, because the Halloween costumes that Kenny does wear are pretty distinguishable from all the other characters. But that is a good idea that they use in this is the fact that each character that Kenny kills, he just then adopts their costume. So it's kind of like Michael Myers changing outfits each and every murder of uh, you know a costume personality. I, I like that aspect of the film. I also am a big fan of um, Hart Bachner's uh, performance in this, or Bachner, however you pronounce his name. Probably my favorite performance right behind, um, what, oh God, Ellis. Ellis the douchebag from Die Hard. John, come on. We've been friends for 30 years. That guy is in this film, and he plays the biggest supreme douchebag in any slasher film I have ever seen. What an asshole he is in this film, because he just does not care. He doesn't care about anybody, whatever, except I will say when his friend gets killed. Uh, I can't remember the character's name, his, his best friend. Well, yeah. even before Moe's death, there's a really telling scene, which I disagree a little bit with you on how callous and cold he is. I think he has a camaraderie and a, a love to his male friends, but is a chauvinist and a misogynist when it's handled with women. That he's That's one what of those... I was just getting ready to get into, because when Mo gets killed, it's a very earnest performance. Because he starts freaking out. Mo states to Jamie Lee Curtis that this is her graduation present, and that he set this up for her. And you find out that it's all Doc's plan. And she gets really, really upset because the last time they did a party with Doc, somebody got taken to the hospital and went fucking insane. So she has a lot of disdain for the fella and doesn't really particularly care for him. Uh, Mo is just really hurt and is afraid they're going to break up. And Doc sits down with him and says, well... If she leaves you, you always got me. I'll always be there for you. Mo laughs at him and doesn't take it seriously, but it's a really, it's just a quick, brief scene. But he looks at him and he's almost hurt and he goes, no, I'm, I'm serious. And then it cuts straight away to like the disco car. And that little bit of telling information just on him as a character shows you that there was a lot more depth put into the whole idea of him. And I think a lot of the point of, of what these characters are is a representation of all of your actions have reactions. You can't just be a dick. You can't just get away with being a dick. If you hurt somebody and you don't care about it, you don't apologize, you don't make amends, karma or fucking not, it will come back to you. And that's a, a big motif. Or is Doc just, is Doc really trying to get rid of Jamie Lee Curtis because he does want Mo all to himself? Is that vibe there with what i just brought up too you could really take it that way that i mean there does seem to be especially with kenny maybe a bit of a homosexual subtext and maybe doc was so particularly mean to him and set him up to in such an awful awful joke because he didn't want to be outed i mean that's always kind of an angle i've took it as but there's no clear-cut direction saw to representation it. of his own of himself someone who's a little bit more effeminate and just freak like I can't I don't want to be around you like oh, look at this it's disgusting to me because it is me and I feel the representation is is pushed a little bit um inappropriately but with how Kenny has been hiding amongst everyone the entire time because Kenny is Ken's assistant which is a woman which is uh, I think it's a good device that they use because they don't focus on her too much I mean you see her in background you don't think too much of it if you if they did too many close-ups of her you would immediately go oh wait a minute that's the guy from the beginning but the fact the way they shoot it though I think works to its credibility 
Well, I watched this twice this week, and the very first time I was a little annoyed uh, when you finally find out, oh my God, it's not David Copperfield. It's the guy from the very beginning. And my very immediate thought was, oh, I, that's bullshit. I, I should have known the whole time that it was the assistant. It's got to be clear cut. You should be able to see it. So I went back and I ended up watching the movie a second time. The assistant has maybe one line of dialogue at the beginning of the movie. You, you, it's in a thick New York accent. You really can't tell anything. No facial shots. Um, when you've got the levitating scene, you get, again, no facial shots, and it's not until possibly the disappearance of Ken the Magician that there's a li- that's, that's finally when Ken's name is said, that Kenny's walking away, or the assistant is walking away, rather, talking to one of the, it's not a security guard, talking to one of the conductors, one of the engineer fucks on the train, I have no clue what they're called, trainmen. She's talking to one of the trainmen and says something about, well, uh, do you want a cup of coffee? I'll be back in a few minutes. That's about it. That's really all you get. So they they hit it so cleverly as a non-essential character that you don't pay any fucking attention at all. So anytime you really want to complain about, oh, it's a mundane kind of slow movie, yes, I'll give you that. But it was fucking cleverly done. And you have to appreciate the, the consideration and the attention to detail with something like a slasher. And that's what makes things so boring now. Like, not to pick on Adam Green, but his whole Victor Crowley series never impressed me or had any any fright or shock factor at all because it's just violence for the sake of violence and all this niche shit. That and also taken. it's just madman. Yeah. I mean, but you've <laughs> taken all this niche shit from horror movies that you hope all these people appreciate and you've added nothing clever. You've done nothing to accentuate the genre and done nothing to make it scary again. And I can go back to terror train from 1980 and still every time I watch it, I'm like, God damn it. It wasn't David Copperfield. Holy shit, that's the magic trick. That's the magic trick of the movie. It's not David Copperfield. I mean, fuck. I don't know how many times I have to it's see It's his greatest this. illusion. Yeah, it's just, he's not the killer. What do you mean he's not the killer? Fuck, he isn't. Well, I, and by far my favorite performance of this film is completely underrated, and it is Kenny. Sure, he doesn't pop up too much and throughout the film, and apparently... Not an actor, according to the IMDb trivia anyway, real trans hustler of the time they picked up off the streets of, I believe, Toronto, that they turned him slash her into an actor. Because I don't think she he was actually trans trans. He was more of a cross dresser because he's still I mean, he's an out gay man at this point. He's still alive. He still do, he does conventions. So he's not fully like a transition trans woman. I think he's more just of a gay man at this point but his performance is so good at the end more than anything he's just so sinister the the looks once he finally removes a mask and all that stuff well, don't just you the feel bad for face. him i mean isn't it, i think what's horrifying and what makes the performance even so much better is the fact that you're heartbroken what they did to him was was awful i mean it, no matter what their reasoning for it we can get college level and in depth with doc maybe seeing something of himself inside kenny but regardless that's an awful prank you did something completely horrible to him and yes murdering people to get your revenge is never the best way to go about doing something but in the venue that we're at right here i choose to feel and personally i mean it's just how i view the movie i choose to feel more bad for kenny than somebody like doc you did this. You set this up, you prick. I mean, this is what happens when you're just uh, an egotistical asshole your whole entire life and think nothing's going to come back to get you. But again, like, he he murders people left and right. It's pretty bad. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. But that does give you a little bit of sympathy for the character overall. Until you see 
Kenny's face at the end, and then it's just like, holy fuck, he's evil. He's evil as fuck. I don't know what it is about his performance that gets to me every time of just like the the immense amount of hatred you see in his face. You know what I think Jamie it is? Curtis. I, I don't even think just necessarily her, but may, I mean, I, I think there's a whole misogyny plot and women in general. But one of the things that really makes it seem almost more hurtful is every time he kills someone, it's after getting their trust. He's assumed somebody else's identity, and just like Practical Magic, just like what David Copperfield does with a sleight of hand, he's appeared and disappeared or made you see something that wasn't actually there. You're paying attention to another detail. You think it's your friend. You have no idea who it is. You're safe. You feel okay. And every time he hurts hurts them, every time he viciously murders somebody, it's after totally gaining their trust. I mean, one is a sex scene. One is, God, what is her annoying-ass name? Mitchie! What a horrible name, Mitchie. Um, she's, you know, getting ready to make love, and it's going to be this intimate fuck scene, and then, boom, stabbed in the chest. You're dead. So it's, I think, developing that trust, and you know the character's about to get harmed when they're feeling safety. I think that's really what plays with your emotion. Well, then at the end, how does Jamie Lee Curtis ultimately thwart the um, the villain by, at the same time, not completely but somewhat gaining his trust because she basically comes on to him, uses her sexuality against him, and it makes him freak Which, out. That's what she did. I mean, that's how she lured Kenny into the situation, but she wasn't aware of it. I think it's it's very well established that she didn't know the extent of Doc's prank, that they set this whole thing up with Kenny that he's going to get laid and that he's not. They have to wear these dumb little beanies until somebody gets laid in their fraternity. Him and somebody else is set up to finally go get it done, and it's all a ploy against him that they've got Jamie Lee Curtis and some other friends upstairs, and she's going to come on super hard to him and get him naked and get him into bed where, unbeknownst to her, Doc has procured a body from where he's been working, a, a, a rather decrepit, awful corpse, and has placed it in the bed, and they think it's just going to be laughter and everything's going to be fun, but it truly fucks with Kenny. I mean, and, and he's sick. Well, who who's not going to be fucked with in that situation? 18, 19 years old, again. Look, and look well, what I just said, been in an though. institution at one point in his life, as mentioned throughout the film. But two, you have to look at something I just brought up, how as a killer, Kenny manages to gain the trust of everyone and harm them and kill them when they are, are most free, when they are most relaxed, thinking nothing bad's going to happen to them. And that's exactly what they did to him. It was going to be something sensual. I'm going to be one of the guys. Everyone's going to accept me. I'm going to get laid. This is going to be awesome. All of them harmed him at his weakest point, at his most needing point when he thought he was going to be a part of something bigger. So he's retaliated in, I guess, a pretty appropriate fashion. They took everything from him, so he's going to take everything from them. I'm, again, not saying go out and murder people that have wronged you. But, hey. Terror Train, it ain't the best slasher, but I think it's incredibly solid, just like Madman. It's really well done, no frills. No, like, outside bullshit that would overly complicate anything. I think they had an idea, and I think they accomplished that idea. And that's really what makes a slasher film work, especially in the, the slasher boom period of around this time, where it's just, this is what we're doing, and we're not going to take it any further than this. And if you get into a more modern-day slasher, you get into a whole thing. This is where I ran about Kevin Williamson. <laughs> because what I think ruined throughout the 90s after Scream came out, what ruined slashers is it no longer became about slashers. It became soap opera 
bullshit that we added a slasher to because Scream, Urban Legend, Valentine, all those movies are just nonsense episodes of Dawson's Creek with a killer added to them. Do, do you What's that series that started with Devin Sawa and Ali Larder where death keeps catching up with them? Final Destination. What do you think about that? Do you like Final... I mean, the first one, just just that. The first one, I think, is a quality film. I think it's a interesting concept, and I think they take that concept and do something, you know, pretty remarkable with it. Every episode past that All is 38 more. garbage exploitation and fucking ridiculous, and we're just trying to extend this idea over and over again, and it's just not that inter- interesting, but the, the kill scenes can be like fun to watch overall, but the, the stories themselves are just complete shit. I, I mean, just the area you're discussing and where you're at, I, I, I can remember there were always brief glimpses of hope in that breath fresh air with something like the Final Destination movie. And I mean, even going into the second one, it still was so much different than the average Scream movie, or I know what you did last, whatever. That yeah, was because still that has punk. a concept that they're working with, and the other, the, like the actual slasher films of the period, don't even really have concepts. They have let's put this mask on a killer, and it's essentially it's the same Valentine's thing. Like in Day. Valentine, it's it's the story of Terror Train. It's somebody that was thwarted as a youth and has now <clears throat> come back to get revenge on the people who upset him. But the rest of it is just bullshit of who's fucking who and why and all the characters are just irrecoverably fucking annoying and just it's so much about this interpersonal relationship nonsense that i just don't find interesting i just don't find like that era of slasher just interesting at all really because go to the scream films say what you want to about the first one new interesting concept fine really there's nothing there but a bunch of garbagey fucking relationship stupid shit and then the second one the third one all the same plot how are we gonna kill sydney this time the fact that you keep continuing also the character sydney over is just again it's just like i don't care where sydney's at i don't care how this relates so now in the third one she has a brother and her mother did this what is this extended nonsense extra plot shit that is not needed whatsoever i think the the nepotism and bullshit when it comes to slasher movies is at its core what causes them to fail and you've got to look at even like halloween 3 so many people bitch about it and it's fine we we can have the discussion all day long you're allowed to like whatever you're allowed to like and it doesn't completely matter but the idea behind that was let's continue the, the the series in name it's something horrifying that happens on Halloween. Unfortunately, a, a somewhat interesting idea. You could have taken that and applied it to absolutely anything. Nightmare on Elm Street. You could even manage to have kept the dream sequences without constantly bringing back Freddy Krueger. Now, again, that's what made the series. But we could have the same Tom Savini argument that being a Friday the 13th fan is fucking stupid because Jason doesn't exist. He's not even a real character. We can be that guy and we can do it that way. It's just still the same fucking thing. That's all that slashers became. You can go back to the early histories like Terror Train. They wanted Madman to become a series like Friday the 13th. They left it open so it could continue going on. But the fact that it manages to be its own. Uh, we kind of had a little bit of a debate on the Sleepaway Camp episode. I like the series. I, I'll take it for what it is. You consider it a standalone film. And why I bring this up is just the point. Certain things on its own are, are horrifying and beautiful. Scream 
could have been a legendary, uh, never done before, totally changed the game horror movie. But now that there's fucking six of them and they're all the same movie and it's all the same nepotism of bringing these characters back, bringing the same killer back, doing the same bullshit over and over and over again, you've done nothing now. You have, you've made a movie of lesser importance than the house that Jack built and god damn it, I'm never going to stop bringing up that movie <laughs> and how bullshit masturbatorial it is because that to me is... The biggest jerk off. It's it's just fucking massive. The best way I can explain it, in, in my viewpoint anyway, is it's like they took Friday the 13th, watched it, and thought the most interesting aspect uh, around that movie was how um, Alice is fu- it was fucking Steve. And now let's make an hour and a half movie about what their relationship problems are. It's mentioned once in the first Friday the 13th movie that they were possibly in a relationship. And there's some issues with it. And none of that's ever resolved. Who gives a shit? It's just a little bit of extra like icing on your cake to like give you some more character. And if you get to the like the the 90s stuff, it's just like, but what about her and Steve's relationship? I don't give a fuck. I don't care what was going on with the relationship. It has no purpose to what's going on in this film. And that's kind of how I view all like the, the 90s slashers. It's just like, let's make an entire movie out of this. I I, I just don't care. I don't care at all. Well, if it's not that, it's the unnecessary backstory and the over-explanation to things. Like, let's look at Michael Myers picking on Halloween a lot on this episode in the 1990s. What was terrifying was a guy in a mask killing people. I don't, what is the Cult of Thorn? What is this in-depth backstory about Celtic magic and that every fool... What the fuck are you talking about? Michael Myers is a psychotic that killed his fucking sister, escaped from a mental hospital, and has a weird mask fetish, and stabbed the fuck out of a bunch of people on Halloween night. It's not necessary and i mean you got like kim hinkle's texas chainsaw next generation they're the illuminati hunting down people to make society better what the fuck are you smoking i smoke weed all day long and never once do i have a wild thought like that so i mean it's just what ifs what if we did this now what if we took leatherface and we put him on the moon and there you go jason in space fuck i was just trying to make a dumb joke but that's an actual movie it's an actual fucking thing jason in space let's just take him and put him in space this time. See what fucking happens. Who cares? What are you? It's it, and then just bouncing off your whole entire point here. You've got these vacant, dumb relationships and this soap operatic bullshit of uh, the depth backstory of these dumb teenagers played by thirty-year-olds that are are vacant and you just kind of want to see get a hatchet in the face. On top of this elaborate backstory of the killer going back to his family in eighteen eighty-two. What does any of it have to do with with even storytelling, art, making something frightening? It's just products now. See, that's, I guess, where I'm at on it is, and I'm all about storytelling. I've said a thousand times, this has story and not a whole lot of plot, and that's a good thing. The problem with slasher films is, it doesn't need a whole lot of story, and I don't want a whole lot of story. Please I want a stop base telling concept. me who Leatherface is. I don't need fucking prequels with Steven Dorff and Czechoslovakia. I'm done. Please stop. Yes. why? I don't need to know all this excess garbage, not even about the killer, but about the characters either. I don't need all this in-depth nonsense. I need it to be fun, and that's kind of the whole point of a slasher film is for it to be fun. And most of the like, modern slashers are not fun. But then again, where we're at in history now, you have people doing the, like modern slasher films and all the references are, 
I love slasher films from the 90s and the 80s, and I'm going to make one. And they appear to not understand what a slasher film is, and it just becomes about having a bunch of squishy effects and coming up with, like, a mask. It's like, oh, Not even so much that. I think a lot of it, too, is look at my love song. I love this so much. Look what I've done. I I did this. I made something. Worship me. I made a movie just like my heroes, John Carpenter, out the ass. Check it out. Yeah, and it's just like, okay, it looks like a fan film. Why didn't you just make a Friday the 13th fan film? Because that's what you've basically done. And it's not very interesting. But according, but I also think slasher films are dead. And they will continue to be dead. And if you get super technical, they died in about 84. That, I mean, people still made them past 84, but like the slasher boom was over in 84. Everything past that is a, like a kind of a bad facsimile of what they were doing then. I think every now and again you do get a glimpse at a modern slasher. I mean, I think Jay Barrichell really made something amazing with Random Acts of Violence, and I think the movie could be described as nothing less <laughs> yeah, than a slasher. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it like a, so much of a slasher film. That's more of a commentary on slasher films. Like I'm talking about just a purebred, dumb-as-shit slasher film. But you have so many subgenres and so much bullshit, like a neo-slasher and art slashers, and when you're looking at the core idea of it, I mean, it's like Blood and Black Lace. That's a slasher movie. That is the premiere slasher movie or again i think i mentioned this on the last show uh you you have the girl who knew too little baba's hitchcock knockoff which features the black gloves and has a lot of the same aspects and thriller detective angles of what a giallo would come into but once you move into the 70s and you have that melding mixture of what the americans were doing which it's funny i mean because at its core the italians ripped off other things to make their great pictures. And that's that's really where core Italian exploitation comes from. It's even how some of the most legendary Westerns and spaghetti Westerns came, came to fruition. And that's all the Americans really did when it came to the formula of slashers. And you, you have John Carpenter. You even have things like Harry Novak's Axe. That's that a weird last house on the left knockoff with a slasher aspect and nothing actually ends up happening in the entire movie. All of that could be considered proto-slashers. Um... Horror House on Highway 5, There, there's just, uh, you've got Texas Chainsaw Massacre in one corner, and it's like the whole argument, who created punk? The Ramones or the Sex Pistols? Where did slashers come from? You've got the Midwest and the West and, and England and Italy and all these other spectrums, and when it finally came and you got the boom, maybe, like, I don't even, I couldn't even give a good aspect ratio of how many good movies versus bad movies ended up coming out that followed... Just the three simple formulas. You either had somebody ripping off the Italians, like Sean S. Cunningham and the Friday the 13th series. He knocked off the Italians. He took that route. Then you'd have somebody either taking the Texas Chainsaw route, like Madman. There's a lot of homages, a meat hook scene, for Christ's sakes. People would take that Toby Hooper and they would run with it. Or the John Carpenters, who would do that steady cam masked killer, something like Terror Train, a complete knockoff of it. And between those three things, by the time you get to 84, 85, it, it had seriously... It had been done so much, Jess Franco was making knockoffs of it now, and that's how you know a genre was dead, when Jess Franco decided to make a movie in it. <laughs> and then he made Faceless in like the late 80s, when it was really fucking dead. Oh, so, we're going on an uplifting end, aren't we? Yeah, Slashers Out Your Ass Month has gotten, I guess, a little... I mean, I mean this is where we're trying to, at its core, discuss the origin and the history and our beliefs and thoughts on slasher movies and where we're at in the history of slashers. It gets pretty dismal. I mean, you can't really... Where we're going next week, which is the 90s and 2000s, how high can you shine? I mean, 
there's the mystery. What the fuck are Actually, we going to talk about? One of the movies we're talking about, uh, it's probably not even that much of a slasher film, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Yeah, it, it came down to one of those things of, well, I guess we could finally do Valentine. <laughs> it might have actually come down to us doing that movie, but thankfully we are not. What is last week's, I think, the end of this till we get to our five days of Halloween? Mm-hmm. Many, many special short episodes with as many slashers as we can cram into it. I, I don't know if all of them are slashers, but I would definitely say there are some esoteric, lesser-known movies, some gems that we hope to provide you guys, something interesting. So while you're sitting at home, hopefully social distancing, you can watch this, enjoy yourself. The most important thing out of this entire episode, something we neglected to mention the entire time, is, hey, you should go vote. Definitely go do that. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Shaman the knife. On the next episode of Death by DVD. Our celebration of slashers continues. Slashers out your ass! All month long, we're talking about slashers from all different ages. Leading up to the five days of Halloween, where a new episode jam-packed with weird and gross slasher flicks will be available every single day until October 31st. (laughs) We've reached the end of our exploration as we enter the night. 1990s on the next episode with a strange, twisted slasher and one all about the American dream, which is murder. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night. And good morning. And now our national anthem.